He who knows how to move around becomes strong. He will live longer than the sedentary man. This is a quote from an ancient Sumerian proverb, the same civilization that gave us the Epic of Gilgamesh, the most famous story from one of the first civilizations to invent writing. The story of Gilgamesh is one that details ancient religion, culture, and hierarchy through a story of one king's quest for eternal life. Spoiler alert for a poem that dropped 5,000 years ago, he fails. The irony, of course, is, as I'm sure your high school literature teachers and or English 101 professors were so eager to point out, is that in a way, Gilgamesh did obtain eternal life. The Epic of Gilgamesh would go on to pave the way for epic literature and storytelling as we know it today, either directly or indirectly influencing works like Parts of the Bible, The Odyssey, Don Quixote, Beowulf, The Lord of the Rings, and of course, the SpongeBob SquarePants movie. I mean, without Gilgamesh, we might not ever know if SpongeBob went to Shell City to get the crown to save the town and Mr. Krabs. Now, if that quote or the name of any of those other works resonate with you more than just a combination of some words, you know firsthand how impactful storytelling is to us. It's why the new Star Wars movies made billions of dollars even though everyone I talked to said that they sucked and they wished Disney would stop putting them out. It's why true crime podcasts are always going to be more popular than anything I'll ever do with this podcast. We love a good story, and great stories become ingrained into our culture. Stories have always resonated with us. They resonated with us 5,000 years ago, and they did before then, too. But around that 5,000-year mark, something started to change. Civilizations started to pop up across the globe over the span of a few thousand years. Of course, one of the first civilizations we know of was Sumer, and through them we learned quite a bit about early civilizations through their stories like the Epic of Gilgamesh. As those civilizations form and solidify their place in their respective lands, so too do the people and stories ingrained in them. It's a part of what makes any given culture unique, and with that comes a strong sense of identity, separate from any other place in the world. Of course, storytelling and cultural identity do pre-exist civilization as we know it, so as we progress in this podcast, we're going to be focusing on the beginnings of the first pre-colonial civilizations in what is now considered the United States Southeast, and how the culture of those people came to be. So that being said, let's jump way back, 8,000 years before that 5,000-year period we're talking about, to where we ended last episode, the Clovis people. Like I teased at last episode, what we used to believe as the first peoples to enter the Americas may have been beaten by a pretty significant amount of time, some scholars even theorizing by 10,000 or so years. So what are the explanations behind those theories? How could people have gotten here before it was viable for the Clovis to enter via the Beringia land bridge? Let's briefly take a look at some of the more popular explanations. First, let's talk about the Salutrian Hypothesis. The Salutrian Hypothesis states that ancient Europeans from modern-day France sailed across shallower waters and ice sheets of the northern Atlantic to inhabit the Americas rather than people crossing from Asia. This hypothesis is supported by the fact that the tools of the Salutrians and the Clovis do share some similarities, notably a technique used to make Clovis points. 
But it's worth noting that no other strong evidence is available to support this claim. There's no evidence that the Salutrians would have been able to make it by boat to the Americas at all, or that there would have been a sufficient enough land bridge at the time. In fact, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that the Salutrian hypothesis is completely false. DNA evidence of ancient Americans have never shown any sign of European ancestry. It's much easier to assume that the Clovis and Salutrians developed a similar technique of spear-making independently, in the same way that agriculture or writing would later be developed independently in many different places in the world. There's simply not enough evidence to justify any real support for this argument where there is for other hypotheses. The fact of the matter is, the only reason that the Salutrian hypothesis is still being discussed widely today is because it's being perpetuated by the type of people that have a vested interest in making it seem that the Native Americans came from European ancestry. A lot of the remaining support for this hypothesis is grounded in white supremacy and is being supported by white supremacist groups as a means to justify European colonialism. The only reason that I bring it up in this podcast as a pre-Clovis hypothesis is because you will still hear people support this idea, and you should know that the basis behind that is not grounded in scientific evidence at all, but is usually perpetuated by racist motives. Similarly, there have been plenty claims that Native Americans have Celtic, Egyptian, Phoenician, Norse, or any wide array of Western origins. Often this is an attempt to strip away indigenous identity and has no real basis other than that. Alternatively, another theory is that Proto-Australians might have entered the Americas before the Clovis. This theory states that it is possible that a particular ancient group of people had split into two groups, one heading towards Siberia and the other heading towards New Guinea and Australia. While this is not an alternative to the hypothesis that the Clovis people came from Asia, it proposes that the Proto-Clovis were not the only people to reach the Americas. There is plenty of evidence to support that this might have happened potentially much earlier than we first assumed the Clovis people would have made it to this half of the world. There's genetic evidence to support that modern Amazonian tribes share ancestry with indigenous Australians. While other cultures may have combined or been displaced by the Clovis, tribes in the Amazon potentially would have remained fairly isolated and secluded from other foreign peoples, meaning that this would not have necessarily happened to them. This theory brings to the forefront the idea that the Americas were not populated by just one group, but by multiple. This line of thinking is a tenet of many other pre-Clovis theories, including the Salutrian hypothesis. Of course, this is still hotly debated. Regardless, we do have plenty of evidence that humans were here at least a couple thousand years before we previously thought. Stone tools and other fossilized evidence places humans in North and South America well before the date stated in the last episode. The most popular theory of how humans made it to the Americas is one of coastal migration across the Pacific and down the coast, using boats to island hop across the Ice Age Pacific Ocean. Archaeological evidence to support this claim does exist, as tools supporting a culture based on a diet of marine life have been found, as well as human remains indicating a diet of marine-based protein. Additionally, DNA evidence has suggested that the ancient humans that would later go on to inhabit the Americas traveled from Asia to do so. The problem with this theory, though, is that a majority of the Pacific coastline 15,000 years ago is now submerged in hundreds of feet of water, so a lot of evidence of early human travel there would be lost by now. Regardless, this hypothesis is now widely considered to be the most probable and would answer why we have found several archaeological sites dating humans back thousands of years before we previously thought they got here. 
That being said, all of the information that I've given you so far is by no means exhaustive. There are certainly other hypotheses out there, and the hypotheses that we have touched on, I did not go into great detail explaining because I don't have that much time or probably that much of your attention at this point. Just know that the general scientific consensus is shifting towards a proto-Clovis narrative and starting to move away from the Beringia standstill theory talked about last episode. Of course, this falls in line with what many native peoples have been saying for hundreds of years into the modern age. Ruth Hopkins of the Spirit Lake Tribe of North Dakota writes that, quote, As an American Indian scientist, I find that both the Bering Strait land bridge theory and the Salutrian hypothesis smack of arrogance and ethnocentrism. Alexander Uwen of the Parapecha Nation calls the Bering Strait theory a product of Western racism. Vine Deloria Jr. wrote in his book, Red Earth, White Lies, Quote, most scholars today simply begin with the assumption that the Bering Strait migration doctrine was proved a long time ago. He goes on to state that the ancient Americans were capable of building boats and discovering America. They didn't just simply wander in on foot. So as the scientific community presents more questions than they can answer, let's refer back to what I was talking about at the beginning of the episode. Stories. Specifically, indigenous creation stories. While we talked about the invention of writing in Sumer, these stories were passed on through oral tradition for thousands of years, giving a sense of identity and connection to those who heard and passed them on well before they were ever written down by colonists. Undoubtedly, the ancient southerners practiced religion and, in turn, passed on their beliefs from one generation to the next, and although we can't for certain ascertain the beliefs of the Paleo-Indian peoples of the southeast, we of course are able to know the origin stories of more contemporary native groups. These creation stories mostly fall into six categories. Earth emergent stories, earth diver creation stories, deluge stories, creation associated with the sun and moon, corn mother narratives, migration stories, or possibly any combination of these categories. We'll briefly go over an example of each one. One Choctaw creation story depicts a flat plain of land wherein a great spirit created a large mound called Naniwaya, located in modern Winston County, Mississippi. By the way, I'm going to go ahead and apologize for poor pronunciation from this point forward, because it is going to happen. The Cherokee arose from that mound through a cave, and that's how they were created. There are many versions of this story that vary at some level, adding various details to the story, but at its core, this is an example of an Earth emergent story, which, along with Earth diver creation stories, are the two most popular creation myths within the Southeast. One Cherokee creation narrative depicts the story of a water beetle who, after becoming fed up with the overcrowding of Galanlati, or the Sky Vault, decided to descend into the water below where he eventually found mud and, after kicking that mud to the surface, began the extremely grimy and soft beginnings of the earth. Eventually, the buzzard was sent down to find dry land, and after growing weary, he began to flap his wings close to the ground. This created the mountains and the valleys of Appalachia. The earth would soon begin to be inhabited by the plants and the animals, and eventually by the women and the men. When it comes to deluge stories, nearly every culture has one, the Epic of Gilgamesh being one of the first and most popular to ever be recorded. The Ojibwe of southern Canada describe a story of the creator growing angry with his creation and causing a massive worldwide flood. This flood covered the land until only one man, Winnes Buzhu, remained. 
He built a raft that was able to hold him and some other animals on it, and after unsuccessfully waiting for a while for the flood waters to subside, the animals began attempting to dive to the bottom to retrieve mud from the old world. This is an instance of an earth diver story combined with the deluge story. The animals all were unsuccessful except for the coot, who was able to grab mud from the old world, and after that when his boozhoo formed the mud on the back of a snapping turtle, creating the new world. The story of the world being formed on the back of a turtle, by the way, is not exclusive to the Ojibwe. The Iroquois notably have a similar creation story, which is why many indigenous peoples and indigenous activist groups today often refer to North America as Turtle Island. This is an extremely popular tenet of many North American groups' mythologies, as is stories involving celestial bodies. One Chickasaw story credits man's creation to Ababanili, who created man from dust and whose powers come from the sun. This and several stories such as the Lakota creation story have heavy association with stars and planetary objects, most notably the sun and moon. One Corn Mother creation story comes from the Cherokee as well. It depicts Selu, the first woman, being born from the first corn plant, and upon her death after being killed by her twin sons, instructed them on how to grow corn so that yearly her spirit is resurrected. Corn Mother narratives are also found in Mayan mythology as well as among the Penobscot people of modern Maine. So we can see that creation stories vary greatly from tribe to tribe and also within certain tribes, and a lot of this is due to the tendency of oral tradition being an active and flexible form of storytelling, much more so than written storytelling. Undoubtedly, the story of Gilgamesh or even Western creation stories like that found in the Bible have changed over time through constant translation or interpretation, but oral stories do tend to be much more fluid in nature. Influence from indigenous cultures or even from Western culture can change or create stories. Notably, one Catawba migration story parallels that of the Mormon belief system that Native Americans were descendants of one of the lost tribes of Israel. We can also see Western influence in some interpretations of Hopi and Blackfoot migration stories, where some people believe that the story is implying a migration across the Beringia land bridge. Of course, there are many more stories, explanations, and details that I'm just not going to get into right now because I do intend on having a more in-depth discussion on Native Southern religion in another episode down the line. As for now, let's finish by revisiting the Clovis as well as the Paleo-Indian period they exist in. By the end of the Ice Age, the climate had obviously gotten much warmer than it was prior. I mean, that, that you know, the Ice Age had ended, so warmer. The Paleo-Indian peoples of the time no doubt were going through a pretty unique moment of change. The big game hunting that they're now infamous for gave way to the hunting and gathering of animals and plants that are much more familiar to us today, like deer, rabbit, etc. There's a good amount of debate on why big game like mammoths and great sloths ceased to exist in North America in this time, but whether it be from overhunting, unadjustable and quick climate change, something else entirely, or a combination of things, we do know that these massive mammals died, and they died kind of quickly, causing humans that were somewhat dependent on them for food to have to adjust their lifestyle pretty dramatically. That coupled with the warmer and drier climate led to them becoming increasingly dependent on plants, seeds, and berries. It also meant that while populations were growing, groups of people were becoming smaller and much more distinct from one another, and they also traveled a lot less. These changes forced new culture and practices to emerge and adjust to the changing times. 
Now we're entering what's called the Archaic Period, as we grow ever closer to the discovery and development of agriculture and civilization in North America. Next episode, we're going to be discussing that. And maybe we'll even talk about the Southeast in this podcast about the Southeast. We'll see. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Land Down Yonder podcast. Please feel free to tell your friends about the podcast if you think they'd be interested and go ahead and follow the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at Down Yonder Pod for updates on the show and a bunch of other stuff. I try to use a variety of different sources for information in this podcast in order to give you the most factual narrative that I possibly can, but I do want to take the time to recommend a book called Native Southerners, Indigenous History from Origins to Removal by Gregory Smithers. This book was a massive asset to me in the writing of this episode, and I pulled from it quite a bit. So if you're interested in anything that I talked about this episode, especially the part on Native American creation stories, I would recommend picking that book up, as it's going to go into a little bit more detail than I did. And I'll also probably be referencing it as this particular season progresses as well. For the next episode, I think I'm going to step away from our current narrative and post an out-of-season episode. I want to try and do this pretty frequently for two different reasons. For one, it's going to hopefully make my week-to-week workload a little lighter in terms of research, and secondly, I don't want this podcast to be strictly a timeline of history that, to me, is just incredibly boring, and I really don't think that I'm going to be able to do exactly what I want with this podcast if I stick to some sort of boring history 101 method of storytelling. I want to take the opportunity to make these out-of-season episodes to dive into things that are more topical. Usually having something to do with Southern culture that has some loose tie-in to the season it's posted in, but sometimes it won't at all. Sometimes it'll just be for fun and have some sort of connection to the United States Southeast. I plan on the next episode to be on ancient extinct animals indigenous to the area ranging from the dinosaurs to a slightly more in-depth discussion than what we've had thus far on the animals during the Clovis period. Hopefully that's something you might be interested in, but if it's not, we'll be back with our regularly scheduled program after this episode, and maybe the out-of-season episodes we do later on will be a little bit more appealing to you. Again, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode, and I hope to see you back next time. Thanks.